In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Firstly, I would like to ask you how you would like to define who you are for the audience maybe first time listening to you. How to define who I am? Wow. Um, yeah, I think I define myself a lot through my work. So I would define myself as a roboticist for sure. I really enjoy um, working and puzzling on any kind of problem in terms of robotic manipulation and how we can make robots closer inability to what um, humans can do, basically. Yeah, and that just is a lot of... Um, um, fun for me to think about. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious about your journey and in robotics. I think you started with your PhD trying to solve the problem, of, for example, how to understand the scene of robotics and manipulation. If you can tell us more about the problem, what could be hard to challenge and still not solve it yet through your work and generally as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I started my PhD in 2007 um, at KDH. Um, uh, in, in Stockholm and I didn't know anything about grasping manipulation at that point um, I had been working on um, I actually uh, did a, what would now be um, an undergrad and master's in uh, computer science it was called a slightly differently back then um, and I had worked on robots before but I was doing more slam style approaches uh, so it was all about, uh, um, yeah, slam with filters and using vision and all of these things. So when I came into my new lab at KDH and I met my advisor, it was the first time I even thought about uh, grasping manipulation. And uh, so I had a lot to learn. I read a lot of papers, <laughs> so many papers. And um, then I did as my first project re-implement a new approach back then uh, that was published in 2006 uh, that was called uh, Grasping of Novel Objects by uh, Ashutos uh, Saxena and Andrew Eng and uh, there were also more authors uh, in between and they um, yeah they completely <laughs> overthrew how people I think in majority at least thought about grasping at that point they just um, they just, in ex, you know, um, they had the idea of um, detecting grasping points in 2D images. And the way they did that is by training a model. Uh, in this case, it was a logistic regression model um, to, um, you know, take us input a bunch of uh, filter responses with hand designed filters and then um, do a classification problem out of this. So for every pixel, they basically check, is, is that pixel presenting itself as a good grasping point or not? And so um, they generate a lot of data and simulation, um, and then they also fine-tuned uh, the whole approach a little bit on real data, and it was pretty amazing what you could do with a 2D grasp detector. And so I re-implemented that, I improved a little bit on this, um, and uh, it was exciting because it was a completely new way of thinking about robotics and resolving also some of the strong assumptions that were made uh, up till then. Um, 
but it also had still a lot of limitations. Um, it had no sense of geometry, you know, in terms of 3D constraints. Um, uh, I actually, I talked a, lot, uh, a little bit about this. Um, I re, um, how to say, like, I revisited that entire project and the lessons I learned from this, like about a year ago. And then I made like one of these talks about this. And so I personally, what I took away from uh, re-implementing this approach was that um, one single point is actually not enough, um, but uh, a parameterization of a graph that just tells you like, um, okay, here's the relative hand pose that the robot hand should be at when trying to grasp an object. That's a pretty good abstraction. And then maybe you have good controllers that actually execute the grasp. Um, I also learned that um, we need to take closed-loop feedback into account. So just open-loop reaching and then grasping something, assuming everything is perfectly calibrated, just never works, um, which is something that wasn't obvious to me back in 2007 when I started. And um, I also learned that um, the, like the, I would say the default approach to motion planning, which is avoiding contact by... Um, you know, by all means, um, it's not actually super useful in robotic manipulation where you actually want to make very deliberate contact, uh, sometimes not only with the object, but even with the environment around it. And so how to exploit that, um, uh, this was really an open question that I, uh, yeah, kind of learned from this uh, first um, project that this is really important to look into. Yeah, that's super Yeah, but I'm curious about what we could still be missing so far. Oh, east work and that. So, what is missing really here? What is still missing? Um, a lot. <laughs> I mean, we still don't have any robots uh, at home that are useful, right? We have uh, up till now, I think, robots that are useful in very constrained environments. And so, what is still missing is um, the ability of robots to deal with any kind of unforeseen situation, right? So uh, even if there is way more learning now in our solutions um, towards robotic manipulation, um, we still don't have good ways that can really um, capture concepts from the data and algorithm sees to generalize um, beyond the very simple scenarios we are we have trained the robot on, right? So we, I think there's still a lot of work, um, uh, yeah, on generalization to be done, um, and this is in terms of generalization of the object uh, to the object that you're trying to grasp, generalization to the environment uh, in which you're trying to grasp, um, generalization to the kind of tasks you want to do, generalization to the robotic hardware, to the sensors. Um, yeah, all of these things um, are missing. And I think we made some progress for sure. <laughs> but it's still surprising how little things really generalize. Yeah, but I'm curious to ask you which part you think what you mentioned is most significant. Is it the design, for example, for robotic hand or that learning algorithms, which one you can pinpoint is really 
may be more significant here. Um, yeah. Um, I don't think I have like a, I don't even want to, <laughs> you know, decide for one because I think both of them are really important. And I actually watched uh, your previous podcast with Ross uh, to Drake. And I think he, you asked him a similar question and um, he, what he mentioned was also that uh, this one example from the peer two or like the first version of the peer two being teleoperated in this living room uh, and uh, that robot by being teleoperated was able to do a lot, even though it's hardware, the complexity of its hands and everything was very, very uh, low. Right. It, had, it had these um, uh, parallel jog rippers um, and uh, but yeah so it I mean it was a demonstration of even though um, hardware may be um, somewhat simple in the sense of it has not as many degrees of freedom as we have for example um, it can still do a lot once the right decision-making mechanism controls it, right? Uh, so uh, that was an interesting experiment, but I think it doesn't mean that uh, we're done with developing newer and better hands, for example. Um, I, think, um, I think it just shows us that uh, people or humans are very good at learning very quickly how to deal with constrained situations. Um, but... Uh, I think if you make the hardware um, better, um, and we can talk about what that means, uh, but if you uh, make the hardware more capable or have more degrees of freedom that are somewhat easy to control, then uh, or write controllers that are uh, more autonomous, then I do think um, you can actually take the load off uh, someone who uh, either teleoperates this robot or you can take the computational load of uh, decision-making mechanism that is maybe uh, artificial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you think about the uncertainty here as well? Do you think that also relates? Because I think soft robotics, we try to, for example, the hand design to adapt to different geometry. How do you see that approach when it comes to uncertain shapes and how you can adapt to that as well? Yeah, I think um, I would say what, uh, and I hope I'm not missing uh, another approach, but I think we have done a lot of progress in picking and placing unknown objects, even from clutter, in the last uh, year, certainly since I started my PhD. It's really quite amazing how that um, initial work that I had just described that detected 2D grasping points and images had really kicked off this learning-based approach and enabled a lot of uh, progress and just picking up these objects that you don't need to know the complete shape of, right? And so I find that actually really impressive. Uh, so I'm thinking of uh, works by Ken Goldberg's lab with uh, Jeff Mallet, all these uh, DexNet works, right? And uh, that team did a lot of work and they trained um, their models on actually simulated data um, to, yeah, um, then enable a robot to pick out good graphs. And there are still a lot of problems then to solve uh, when it comes to clutter. 
and how to maybe deal with failure or maybe learn from failure, but just um, this uh, even open loop pick and place was really impressive. Also the Google Arm Farm uh, was also interesting in that respect. Uh, so, and these are really systems that can deal with uncertain object shape. They don't know what the shape of these objects is. Often they don't even know um, how these objects that are all lying on top of each other are segmented exactly, right? They just go for it. They have sometimes not even a concept of objectness. Um, and so um, I think for pick and place, uh, I'm sure to make it really robust and bring it to industry, there is a lot of work to do. Um, you know, to close these last percentage points, just like in autonomous driving, I guess, right? Um, but I think that's the area of biggest progress. And now when it comes to more complex manipulation and you have uncertainty about object shape, for example, there, um, then things become much more brittle. So I'm thinking, I'm just going to take an example from my work um, that we did uh um, in 2020, um, I think we, we submitted a journal paper on this, and that one was about um, just this age-old problem of peg insertion, right, which appears in all sorts of contexts. Um, but there we looked at how can we use um, feedback in the control loop, uh, not just from vision, but also from touch, to, um, to basically perform successfully this peg insertion task. And uh, in that context, we did uh, investigate whether we can learn a representation of um, kind of this, whatever the robot perceives, either through vision or, or touch, that generalizes across variations of this task. And there we consider different shapes um, of the object, for example. And, and, and we really consider tight insertion tasks, so really low tolerance uh, tasks that required quite some precision. And we, we could show that even with a representation that is learned on one object, this representation can be used also for solving the task with a similar object that has a different shape. But um, so that was pretty interesting, but it's still so far away from what humans can do in terms of generalization, right? So it's still, uh, interesting like how much data we really need to make a robot do um, these kinds of things but yeah I mean I mean there's lots of work uh, work on this but it's still always surprisingly limited what you can do in terms of generalization great but maybe I'm curious to ask you since you mentioned human what do you think maybe we need to understand more for example we speak about embodied intelligence should we you mentioned maybe better hardware maybe better brain side how do you see this concept in the design so that we can yeah match what we ha have as a human capabilities in manipulation and grasping what kind of understanding we needed hmm. yeah um if i knew this <laughs> if i knew the answer to this i think that would help a lot but uh what i think one big question is is really or something that I always uh, struggle with in my um, research work is um, what the right representations are that connect perception to control or planning of the robot arm because there there are many different ways um, and 
I'm always going back. My research work is really a mix and match of different options, depending on the on the project. And I wish there was like this fundamental abstraction or a fundamental way or uh, like some algorithm or a method that you can uh, use to get a fundamentally important abstraction of the kind of sensor, sensory data you have that is useful for this task. But somehow I, maybe there is none. I'm not sure. <laughs> so the kind of options that we are exploring or that we are kind of bouncing back and forth in my lab as well is to, for example, have a learned representation of all this perceptual data. You know, it could be any modality at this point. Um, and then use a uh, maybe uh, an, you know, a learned policy uh, using, for example, reinforcement learning that uh, uses this learned representation as state feedback, right? So that's one of the ways um, that we represent data and connect between perception and action. And the other way is to, instead of relying on these uh, learned policies that are often very simple and efficient and, uh, you know, especially in robotics can be very difficult um, to learn on real data. Um, uh, we, I, I also like to use traditional controllers because they are actually quite well understood, but um, traditionally they assume a lot of ground truth knowledge about uh, the geometry of the world, the geometry of all the objects, the geometry of the robot, the, um, they make assumptions about how contexts are formed and so on. And so, but still lots of these concepts are of course extremely useful. And so we, and lots of my work, we also pick as a representation, these interpretable quantities that these traditional controllers actually expect. And maybe the way we extract these quantities from raw sensory data is also through a learned method. Um, but there, the, this representation is, um, uh, is at least understandable and you can maybe debug it easier and, and things like that. But yeah, so, but, you know, each of, each of these options um, has really its pros and cons. And so I haven't really found that there's this one solution. And I think that's where we still need to understand to come back to your question right like need to understand a lot like what's the right interface between perception and action is there one that is useful maybe not i think it's probably very task oriented um and then maybe also dependent on the whole context of the environment that you're looking at so yeah so for now it's always a bit it seems always a bit like hand designed what you what you really picked there but um, I want to ask you in that process, is there is a trade-off? Sometimes we have in design process a trade-off that we can't avoid. And what do you mention? Do you have any kind of trade-off so far? You can't really get, yeah. You can't avoid this trade-off. Um, I guess one of the trade-offs uh, that we are basically sliding on all the time is this trade-off between... Uh, uh, bias and variance, right? So, um, as I mentioned, like we actually often know how to control a robot, right? But it assumes that you know all these things. So, um, if you input the structure of the controller, but also of the representation, 
you gain a lot by biasing the whole system towards this. You, you need less data to potentially train components of it. You gain interpretability and easier ways to de debug your system. Um, but you may actually limit yourself in terms of the kinds of behaviors you may see. Um, right? So one of the things that... Um, so at the, at the other end of the spectrum, right, uh, you have a lot of variance potentially, right? So let's say you remove a lot of structure of things that maybe you, you think we actually already know. Um, and uh, like at the very end of the spectrum, right, like you have completely end-to-end -end learned system. Now what happens is that you need a lot of data to train the system and there's a lot of variance if you're... Um, out of distribution, uh, right, of what your system is actually going to do. And so you have not good ways other than collecting more data to somehow steer the system towards not, you know, uh, ending up in some catastrophic failure. Uh, but the kind of behaviors that you see by the system are things that you cannot necessarily um, easily design or model with traditional models. Right. And so that's, I think, the really interesting part. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually, as an example, um, I'm thinking about the OpenAI hand. Um, uh, I'm calling it the OpenAI hand, but I think it was the project was called Learning Dexterity, right, where they had the shadow hand and it would uh, rotate in hand uh, all these different objects. And the kind of behavior that this hand showed, I thought was super interesting. I mean, something that would be very hard to model. And even if you could model it, the model would be so expensive to evaluate in runtime and like at test time, right? That it's not feasible to actually put it into a real-time system. And so that I thought was really cool to see on, on this hand. But then when you see how much infrastructure there was just for learning, for generating the data, how much data was needed to just rotate a cube and then how much more data was needed to do the same with a cylinder, right? then that's, that, that was also somewhat a downer, I would say. And so, um, but again, like the behavior was really cool to look at. And so that is a trade-off, I think, that we cannot really avoid or we haven't really found out. Uh, I think lots of people are basically working on this, including myself, right? Like how to ease that trade-off somehow, where to find the right, the sweet spot, basically. But I'm curious to ask you about maybe sometimes you have this counterintuitive behavior. I don't know if you have witnessed something was doesn't make sense to you, and that's again a model. Or do you have any moment like that? And maybe yeah, in life was surprising. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I guess all the time. Um, let me see for a good example. Um, Um, I guess, so. okay, so here's one thing that is maybe something that I, as a PhD student, uh, didn't understand. Or actually, um, it was when I transitioned from PhD student to postdoc when I realized uh, a few things, actually. But one was maybe something very basic, uh, but I think a lot of people who are maybe focusing a lot on simulation uh, would maybe find that also surprising, but... What I didn't understand is that a robot may not exactly 
do track a planned trajectory that you want it to go, but that it's actually doing something slightly different and that this has a lot of influence on the success of your task. So during my PhD, I actually worked with, um, uh, with an industrial arm that has submillimeter precision. It was uh, a very stiff, very dangerous arm actually from KUKA. And then I came to uh, the lab where I did my postdoc by, uh, headed by Stefan Schall, and they worked a lot with compliant arms, arms that had um, mechanisms like uh, cable-driven mechanisms, like the Barrett Warm arm, or we worked with the lightweight Kuka arm uh, that were all compliant and super nice arms. Uh, but what I didn't understand when I transitioned to these arms was that these arms are... Um, uh, you cannot control them if you want to keep the compliance as precisely as this industrial arm, for example. And so this problem of how you deal with this uncertainty um, between perception and action now um, exasperated, sorry, <laughs> made worse by this arm that is not as precise uh, became even more urgent or more important, actually. Um, yeah, so I think this was not super obvious for me at that at that point, um, and actually surprising. And the other thing that was surprising was, um, again, like when I came out of my PhD, I had mostly worked with the idea that um, we you need to avoid the environment as much as possible except from these two points maybe on the object on these few points on the object that you want to grasp with your hand uh, but you have to carefully you know thread uh, the arm through all these uh, potential clutter and to be able to do that you need to understand the environment and reconstruct it as accurately as possible and so when i when i joined this lab as a postdoc um, they had not done manipulation uh, before I came. They basically jumped into a DARPA challenge. Um, and so they had to kind of mm, come up with solutions towards solving these problems that were posed there, like picking up objects uh, from a table. And so because they were controlling their arms in a compliant way, there was no danger in actually getting in touch with the environment or with the table, for example, of touching it, of sliding along it, uh, of maybe caging things by sliding on them. So all of this was um, suddenly possible. And so their solution to these things were actually very robust because they had this compliantly controlled arm to exploit the environment um, and make grass thereby uh, more robust. So that was one ingredient of their solution. And it was completely different from how I had thought about this before. And it was uh, surprising and really eye-opening as well. Yeah. Do you think it's so necessary for you to, since you mentioned the model sometimes when it comes to compliant arm, do you think it's necessary to, I don't know how do you see simulation so far, because it's still there's a gap here, but from your experience to which level do you think we can, yeah, make simulation so realistic? and um, we don't have to have take expensive data. Do you think that's solution or doesn't make sense to you? Um, that's generally definitely not the case. <laughs> but, and, but there are some cases I think where things are already easier in terms of tasks, right? And then, uh, you know, 
when it comes to soft robotics, what this podcast is about, right, and what you're working on, uh, I mean, things are um, terrible, I think, in terms of simulation. Um, I'm just starting on working uh, much more in depth, also together with my postdoc, Rika, um, on manipulation of deformable objects. And, yeah, simulation environments are so terrible, I mean, they're brittle, they explode all the time. Um, I mean, it's, I don't know what your experience is actually, but uh, that's that's kind of my experience. And also, um, they're slow, of course, as well, right? Like, they're, they're brittle, they're inaccurate, they're slow. Um, so I don't think they're great for testing your idea right like because you can't like possibly uh, test everything in the real world right but uh, sometimes I probably for a deformable object sometimes it might be actually easier to test things in the real world but um, uh, but I think in general simulations are very good as sanity checkers right if um, if in this enclosed world does your idea your algorithm your controller uh, your perception mechanism whatever does it actually work but I think when it comes to deformable objects or soft robots or things like that, uh, soft sensors, all of this, porting this directly from simulation to the real world, I, at least at the moment, is definitely not possible um, or very hard to do or in very limited setups, I would say. I don't know. Do you agree with that? Or <laughs> Yes, I, I have experience also thinking non-needed material, for example, it's very hard to simulate sometimes. And... Uh, Yes, I, I share with you the same vision. So there's a lot to be done. And I think Russ was speaking about that in, the, in Drake tool. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure how it will turn out. But you're absolutely, yeah, mentioned the same struggle we have. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say actually I'm learning that there are a lot of different uh, simulators out there that have some version of deformable objects implemented in them. But all of them have a problem somehow in, in the ways I just described, right? Uh, accuracy, speed, um, and just brittleness, general explosion of things. So I, yeah, so, so I would say we're far in, in that area from porting into real. And when, then when we come to uh, rigid objects or, or grasping, I think um, some tasks, I would say, are easier to go from sim to real um, and it depends a lot on again on the abstraction that you're using that's at least my experience so for example I can give you one example where um, we had uh, we had um, a project where we looked at different uh, action spaces for reinforcement learning algorithms so if you have a policy that takes in a state it outputs an action A. And that action A, when you try to control a robot, could be many different things, right? It could be the torque at the joints, it could be the velocity of the joint, it could be the positions of the joints, it could be the end effector position, and so on and so forth, right? It could be anything. And, um, the, and it turns out that, uh, that that action space that you use um, has a lot of influence on how easy or hard it is to learn certain tasks and also how easy and hard it is to transfer from sim to real or from one ro robot to the other robot 
So in this particular study, what we what we found is that um, when you have a contact-rich task, uh, then um, actually using uh, as output of a policy the n-effector um, displacement and um, the impedance gains of like how much it's basically uh, force applying to it, it's it makes learning these tasks much easier. And we could actually show that we can take the same policy, transfer it to a different robot that has a different kinematics, uh, has completely different kinematics, and we could also port it to the a real robot actually with the same kinematics. And and that didn't, of course, work with if you if you send joint space uh, commands, right? So um, so it, I I think again like this abstractions for the state but also for the actions that you're sending actually make a huge difference when it comes to sinterial transfer as well mm -hmm. great so since uh, we close the entire three question maybe the first one about do you think that designing robots should be more predictive for example from your work should be more predictive and less depending on the feedback more i think that's something also speak about so robotics to be more predictive the behavior and you shouldn't really rely so much on the feedback uh, yeah, yeah okay uh, yeah, so hmm, that's a yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, this, you know, what this is like another trade-off that we <laughs> that we are always um, dancing on, right? <laughs> like and jumping like back and forth in a way. So um, again, like in my work, we have done um, both having feedback policies or, or feedback controllers that take in feedback in at every you know possible cycle at uh, at every time in, in the control cycle uh, and then immediately react to it but we also played around with policies that are actually open loop executing um, for uh, even a few seconds um, or maybe 200 milliseconds or something a particular plan or a particular trajectory, and maybe this has been learned, right? But it would be uh, an open loop trajectory that this robot follows. And um, yeah, and so that choice, when I look at these particular works that I'm thinking about right now and from the lab, that choice was made for easier learning because if you're trying to learn a feedback policy, you typically just need way more data, then uh, learning a policy that maybe generates uh, an entire trajectory that stretches over a certain amount of time and does like one motion. But of course, um, when you open loop execute these trajectories, uh, there will be deviations from what you've seen during training, right? So we definitely also seen that some feedback to adjust this initial trajectory would be very, very useful. Right. But I, I also do think that learning, and this has been shown by others as well, that uh, learning some corrections rather than the feedback policy from scratch, for example, is much easier than, um, than learning an entire feedback. Yeah, it's much easier than learning an entire feedback policy. Um, so that's one of, the, um, uh, one of the answers I have with respect to your, to your question. And then the other one is, um, the other thing I'm thinking about is that um, I think when, when a robot or even us, when we learn a new skill, um, then 
I think we do rely on a lot of feedback. Um, and at some point, often these kinds of skills may become automatic and open loop, actually. Uh, and so that feedback is not necessary anymore at that level of detail, right? And so maybe um, you only react if something really wildly different uh, happens during executing this particular uh, motion. Um, yeah, so uh, I don't know how to do that, but maybe uh, what would be interesting is to, uh, when you are sufficiently um, skilled in a certain task, uh, you can go from a policy that relies or controller that relies a lot on feedback on more open loop um, uh, execution of these things. Um, uh, but yeah, I, uh, um, yeah, this probably shouldn't be encoded in the design, right? Because then you don't have that stage uh, where you are learning new things because um, because you still need all these sensors uh, and at some point you can maybe extract away from that. But uh, I don't know if you should leave out sensing right from the beginning, right, in a, in a robot. I think two questions. Let's first one, how do you deal with doubt when you have new ideas? How do you, yeah, how we deal with doubt or... Oh, yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, I mean, you never know if an idea works, right? Never, um, unless it's, you know, like something written in a textbook. Even then there's a chance that it was wrong. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, uh, so how do I deal with this? Um, I guess, uh, and that's maybe easier for me because I made a lot of experience with failure, but I'm thinking that... Um, when you have an idea, you should always you should always remember that it might not work. Um, and if you, I definitely, when I started my PhD, I did not keep that in mind that that might not work as well as I think that idea. And so it was very frustrating when it didn't work out. Uh, but now, after all these years, I'm kind of have this experience like, okay, I have this idea, but. As usual, it's not going to work as well as I think. But if we don't try it, we will never find out, and we will um, if uh, we will not learn anything from it if we if we don't try it. And so, of course, you cannot try all the ideas. You still have to kind of vet them um, for a while, right, and discuss them hopefully with people. But I think um, it's just important to keep in mind that ideas may not pan out at all. Uh, it might be there might be counterintuitive things happening that you uh, or you've forgotten about something right that that only you remember once you implemented it and uh, things don't work out and then you remember oh yeah that's because of that um, so how do you deal with doubt um, I think yeah moving forward uh, and trying things and so I I actually I found um, a really great deck of slides from one of my colleagues at, at Stanford. He's actually not in robotics. Um, he's called Michael Bernstein, and uh, he um, has a lecture for undergrads uh, who want to do research. And so it's like a seminar on doing research for undergrads. And one of the uh, lessons is called Velocity. 
And there he talks about uh, that every research project has a swamp, uh, a phase where you're stuck, where you're just wading through stuff. You have no idea what's going on, why things are going wrong. And uh, this lecture is about how you get out of it as fast as possible. And so one of the things uh, he has in the slides is that you have to be able to try different hypotheses as fast as possible, right? And so uh, it's always, uh, and you know, for some ideas it works easier than others, but you should always think about the most minimal, tiniest example to test, that you can test as fast as possible um, to see if there is a path, uh, uh, if your idea has even the, the chance to work or if you're stuck because of a certain uh, hypothesis, right? And so that approach of um, thinking about a toy example, a minimal example to test uh, your hypothesis, I think that allows you to have velocity and uh, you know, if you have any doubt, you can confront it in that way, right? Like, okay, I have this doubt. Why is that? Okay, how can I test this, right? And um, I think that's at least, you know, what I'm also trying to recommend to my students and sometimes easier to be done, easier than in other times to do. But yeah, um, I think that's one way. That's excellent. Thanks for sharing that. It's very inspiring. And to question left, the first one, I think, what could be the most important quality? You mentioned failure and yeah, it's a lot of pain sometimes through the yeah, journey, but what could be the most important quality for you? Um, I still have to enjoy that work, right? So um, I think I'm, uh, yeah, there are definitely sometimes frustrating periods in research, right? When things don't work out or your paper or your proposal gets rejected all the time for me. So uh, it's very frustrating and it, it keeps being frustrating. But as long as you still enjoy maybe most of the work, if you look back, if you, if you can look at your achievements and uh, see joy in them or you explore research idea and you see join them if um yeah this is something um i think is most important for me to keep going right like that i still have this curiosity and the interest in robotics and in these different uh problems and um yeah and this is something that that keeps me going right like even through maybe some more difficult or frustrating experiences that definitely happen as well right um and so that's a uh that's something i don't want to miss as a researcher and i i don't know if you have any advice you received maybe through a career or life and was a life changing and stick to your mind yeah that's a good question <laughs> It's really funny because uh, I did like an Ask Me Anything series in my department with all my colleagues. And this is one of the questions I'm also asking. And then people, <laughs> and now I'm here, I'm getting these questions. And I'm, I'm like struggling finding a good answer. Um, I certainly had a lot of great mentors in my, uh, in, throughout my career. So there were um, a lot of people who gave me good advice, including my PhD advisor uh, and my postdoc advisor. 
and also my advisors. Uh, okay, here's one. Here's one that is a good one. Say no more often. <laughs> I don't, so, you know, like there are lots of people who are asking you to do lots of things. Uh, and, you know, especially if you are uh, from any kind of minority, if you're a woman or a minority, right, you, you have this additional um, bag of questions that is being carried towards you, right, to do this or that for diversity, right? Like it often happens and you're expected to do it kind of um, as a service to the community. And so, um, and of course, there are other things that are, you're being asked to service, like not just on diversity, but on other things. Uh, and it's okay to sometimes say no, right? Because you, you can't possibly do often all of these things that are being asked uh, from you. And uh, so that's, I think, one advice I have gotten um, from uh, some great mentors. And I think that is also good to hear uh, from others, uh, for others as well. Yeah. I agree with you. Thanks for sharing that one. I don't know if you have any final words for Botox community would like to say before closing. Any final words? Final words. I really like the robotics community, I have to say. Um, I'm comparing it sometimes with other research community, and I have to say that um, um, I, I actually remember one researcher uh, who was not from the robotics community, but who I met at a, at a seminar who said like, oh, the roboticists, they are always so nice to each other because they know how much work it is to make an actual robot work and how hard it actually is. And so they are very, mostly very nice to each other when asking questions, while in other communities um, it can become, uh, can become quite competitive. And so, uh, yeah, I guess my final words to the community would be stay like this, stay nice to each other and uh, be welcoming and, and inclusive uh, as you are. And I think there's also still a lot to improve, but I think we are starting from a good base. Thanks so much, Nets. Such honor. Such honor to have you on the podcast and I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Marva, for inviting me. It was really fun.